0: Lisa had no idea where to sit. Um, Just so you know, I had nothing to do with it. I just came in and that's the way it was. So um, I guess Kingdom Center decided to change the furniture after their Friday night service. And just David just prayed for Janet. She does have pneumonia, she's still very sick. And she said if you prayed any one thing for her, it would be that she could take a deep breath without coughing. And I would say amen to that because she coughs constantly. Um, so, yeah, pray for her. Um, this Tuesday marks the end of our 21-day fast and prayer of all the churches in the city. And we've had great times together. It's I, I love what the Holy Spirit does. Last night, um there's another church um that um it's called the rising church that led prayer last night because they don't have a building and there are only five of us five men Um, one of the men his name was luca and he's from china and he's actually in the u.s um, on asylum uh, because he was the uh, official artist for the government and um one day he found Jesus and he renounced communism, and so they tried to kill him. And uh, so he's here in the U. It doesn't speak any English at all. And so it was interesting praying last night because there was actually five men and Google Translator <laughs> in the midst of our prayer meeting, and so he would pray into the phone and it would translate, and we would pray into the phone, and it would translate for him, and uh, it was it was an interesting night but one of the things I was telling David one of the things that amazes me is people who are raised in uh, Asian countries when they start to learn English it's very hard for them to say the letter R I don't know why but it is and um, but last night when he started praying in tongues he was rolling R's like he was Spanish (laughs) and I'm going how does that happen because so it's just amazing what what God does but David today, he talked about Exodus 33, and he talked about Ephesians 1, and last night we prayed Exodus 33. We prayed, show me your glory, we prayed that over the city, and so it was a great time last night. All that to say is the pastors really want to close out the last 24 hours praying for the city nonstop. So And they've decided the best place to pray 24 hours is in a prayer room. And so beginning 9 o'clock Monday night, we're going to have one-hour shifts. And um, I have a sign-up sheet here. Different people have signed up from different churches. 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock on Tuesday night, all the churches are going to come together at Redeemed Life, which is on the corner of 4th and Azusa. And we are going to lead the meeting. Joe will lead worship, and our team will lead worship. I will lead prayer, but all the city will be there to close out the 21 days. So this is going to be in the back. And yes, there are other names already in the time slots, but that's okay. We will have somebody from the house of prayer here, um, here all the time. Um, Anissa is. Anissa, not Elisa. Uh, Yeah. Why am I on a spot today? I don't know. You're just. It's just like. If you know Anissa, when it's 80 degrees outside, she's cold. You know? She walked in today in short sleeves. And didn't turn the heater on. And so I just thought maybe Jesus was coming back today or something was, was going to happen. But anyway, as soon as she found out we were doing 24-hour prayer, she said, I want to be here all night. So she is actually going to be here from, yeah, all night, even though people be coming in and out. And uh, I'll be here during the day. And uh, so there will always be somebody here, and there will be people from, here from other churches. And we're going to have slides just going up on the screen. Slides that cover every aspect of our city, has the name of every principal, every elementary school, officer, every elected official, our school board, um, and every church, every pastor. And the slides just continue. So when you come in for that hour, you're just going to pray quietly like doing devotions, but you'll pray what's on the slides. And uh, if you get stuck on one slide, don't worry, it'll come back up again because they're just on a loop. Um, So I would really love for as many as you can to sign up. Um, I know that um, some of you just have a hard time sleeping at night, so this is a great place to come. Um, I did find in the Bible, if you've ever read the story of Esther, um, King Artaxerxes, or Xerxes, depending on how you want to pronounce his name, um, it says when he couldn't sleep, he got up and read the Chronicles, um, so if you ever have, a, you know, insomnia, read Chronicles and I guess you'll fall asleep. So just just so you know that that's also possible. So that's it. So Tuesday night uh, or, or beginning Monday night, nine o'clock, 24 hour prayer here at the House of Prayer. Uh, we'll wrap it up at seven o'clock Tuesday night at Redeemed Life. If you can't come for the 24 hours, please pray for Janet that she can breathe. And uh, she only has pneumonia in one lung, center left lung. And um, in our 46 years of marriage, I've never seen her this sick. So it's pretty uh, its pretty awful. It's the only way I could say it. And God and I have a lot of conversations, and that's a whole sermon in and of itself. Um, but we're going to jump into Ephesians 1. So we are out of Galatians, moving into Ephesians. I don't know if David chose Ephesians 1 today, but the verses he chose today we're going to cover next week. So... Um, I don't know if you chose Ephesians 1 because we're in Ephesians 1. And um, the, the primary message of the Church of Jesus Christ is this. The salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. There's only one way that you and I can come to salvation and it is through confessing our sin, confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is salvation. In that river, there are a lot of little streams that run off. And there are multiple streams in the church that um, all converge on this river. And today we're going to talk about one of the streams. Like there's the stream of premillennial and amillennial when it comes to end times. All millennial believe that the millennium, the, the tribulation already happened in AD 70 and that the thousand is responsible for making the and not literal and that the church is responsible for making the world ready for Jesus to return. That's all millennial. pre believe that Jesus is going to return before the millennium, pre-millennial. And so I know people that are amillennial, whom I love, who love Jesus with all their heart. I know people who are premillennial. Then also in the premillennial position, there's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. There's those little, and and so I know people who believe all three. We have, um, there are people who are called cessationists, who believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended when the apostles died out. And then we have people who are uh, charismatic, who believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in full operation today. And then there are those who believe that um, we are saved because God chose us. And then we have those who believe we are saved because Jesus died for us and we chose to believe in the completed work of Jesus. And I said all that because today, Paul talks about predestination. And so we're gonna get into predestination today. I'm going to give you both sides. Um, and as it is, people who don't believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today read the same Bible you and I read. They just put on different glasses. They have a different lens. People who are millennial, they're called preterists. Preterists believe that Jesus is returning just the same way as premillennial, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib believe that Jesus is returning. They just believe the sequence and what happens and what has to happen before is different. People who, are, who believe in predestination, that we are predestined for God to choose us as opposed to those who believe that Yes, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ because we chose God. We believe salvation comes the same way. We preach the same gospel. And so just say all that as a foundation for what, with regard to predestination. You can interpret this passage one of two ways. And I'm going to present both ways, and you can draw your own conclusion. Um, I'll tell you what I believe and why I believe it, but you have, to, you have to make your own choice. And so with that said, let's just jump into Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you remember the whole year it took us to get through the book of Acts, um, Paul's, if Paul had a favorite city, it was Ephesus. Um, he, he lived there more than any, he lived there almost three years. Amongst the people. Um, he, uh, he was an apostolic missionary. So he came into the city as a missionary. But then he lived there and he became an apostolic pastor. And so he pastored the city. He was also a missionary to the city. He loved that city. So much so, you remember in, in Acts 20, that uh, he had missed uh, Passover in Jerusalem. And he wanted to make sure he was back in time for Pentecost. And so in Acts 20 he took a boat instead of roads so he could bypass Ephesus because he knew if he took a road and stopped in Ephesus, he would never make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So that's how close Paul is to the people, to the church in Ephesus. But when he writes this letter to them, he's just not writing it for them. He's writing it because he knows it will circulate throughout the entire region that's known as the church. So, not just the Ephesians read the letter, but all those in the region of Galatia read the letter. All those in Philippi probably read the letter. People in Jerusalem probably read the letter. So it was a letter that was circulated widely. And so this, this passage, this letter, is Paul's statement on God's eternal place. Individual believers. Uh, because it is individual believers that comprise the church. So if we don't have individual believers, we don't have a church. And so so he talks to the overall organism we call the church, but he also speaks to each of us individually about our personal relationship with God through Jesus. And so he begins the way he begins a lot of his letters, grace to you and peace through our uh, Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And just know this, you can't have peace with God until you have fully embraced his grace. Because people who don't embrace the grace of God will never approach God because they are condemned by the lies of the enemy and by their own sin. But coming to Jesus, through grace you are saved, not by works, but, but lest any man should boast. So we are saved. Faith through grace is how we're saved. So once we walk in grace, then we have peace to know that we can stand before God fully clean because the grace that God demonstrated through Jesus has washed our sins away. And so um, he moves, he says, look it, we're here because of grace and because of grace we have peace. And then he moves and he says this in verse 3, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And just let me say this, Paul is the guy who talks more about heavenly places than anybody else in the Bible. And he talks about a lot in Ephesians. So he talks about a blessing, that we have a blessing in heavenly places. But he also talks, and you get to Ephesians 6, he talks about our wrestling with spiritual entities in heavenly places. So Paul is very aware that even though we are flesh and blood, living on this earth as spiritual people, our relationship with God, our counsel. You know, Isaiah 55 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways your ways. So Paul is one understanding that. He says, look it, for us to walk in the full authority of who we are in Christ Our relationship with God and all that happens in our life actually is meted out in the heavenlies. Whether it's the counsel of God where we learn his ways and his thoughts or whether it's spiritual warfare where we fight against principalities. It's all taking place in the realm of the heavenlies even though our feet are planted here on earth. And so when Paul starts by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's actually saying we are blessing God. When he said, blessed be our God, and here's how you and I bless God. This is, this is recognizing God's glory, God's honor, God's goodness, um, and the idea behind it is praising and worshiping God in love. What we just did, what Emily just led us in, and we participated in, is the fullness of what Paul says when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord, Jesus Christ. We have been blessing God. God loves worship. God loves praise. So Paul begins by saying, we bless God by worshiping God. Because he says, we worship and bless him because in return he has blessed us. And in that blessing, this blessing is ours because God's resources are there for you and I always. Always. We need to know God is an endless source of blessing for us. And, and unfortunately, we think of blessing in temporal ways. When, when I say God has blessed us, we think about family and homes and clothes and cars and jobs and bank accounts. We think about all the tangible stuff that we can touch. But Paul says that he is. So now we're back up in the heavenlies again. And So what he first of all, when he says, who has blessed us? And then in a minute, he's going to say has blessed you. So Paul, remember, is a Jew. The Ephesians are Gentiles. So when Paul says us, he's talking about Jews. When he says you, he's talking about Gentiles. But he's making it very clear that through Jesus, the blessings that God had promised to the Jews, we've already gone through this in Galatians, the blessings through the righteousness of Abraham are made available to Jews and Gentiles alike. So who has blessed us, you know, first century Jews had a strong sense of being blessed and being called by God. So Paul's teaching that all these things are now given to all Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And so he describes what kind of blessings? And he describes the place of the blessing. So the blessings that God has for us are spiritual blessings, and those spiritual blessings are in heavenly places. So again, how do we get into heavenly places? I remember years ago, years and years ago, um, I, I wasn't even a full-time pastor, but I had, I had read a book um, by Jack Hayford, and he had told the story. When he took over Church on the Way, Church on the Way was an itty-bitty building um, on, on Sherman Way with about 18 senior citizens. That was it. And <coughs> he was a firm believer that the way you build the kingdom, the way you do what God has asked you to do is through prayer. And so every Saturday night, he would have the elders come, and they would pray in the church together, and the church began to grow, and they had gone to multiple services, and he writes in this book that one night when they began to pray, one of the men just went awestruck because suddenly he saw an angel in each corner of the room, and he saw the glory of the Lord in the room, and he shared that with everybody while they were praying, and Jack was puzzled. And, and he, had, he was puzzled because he didn't quite fully understand why angels would come down to the building when they were praying. And he said at that moment, the Lord spoke to him and said, when you enter into prayer, when you enter into calling my name, I don't come down, you come up. And so the fact that they saw the angels was not the fact that the angels had come down to that building. The fact was they, in their prayer life, had come up to the sea of glass, to the throne room of God. And so they were seeing what was going on in heavenly places. And that has stuck with me my whole life in my prayer life. And that I truly believe, and, and I think Scripture supports it, that when we pray... That's why we're called, that's why Paul says we have spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Heavenly places is where we go when we pray, the blessings we receive from that. And and the problem is these spiritual blessings are better, are higher, are more secure than earthly blessings. Heavenly blessings are eternal. they last forever. Earthly blessings, let's face it. Not only are we dying, our cars die, our houses die, our dogs and cats die, our birds die. Everything is deteriorating down here. The b- blessings in the heavenlies are eternal. They, they don't tarnish. They don't diminish. They, they last forever. And I don't know about you. So if if I have a choice <clears throat> between earthly blessings or spiritual blessings, I'm going to church I'm going to choose heavenly blessings. People who choose earthly blessing, blessings blessings really live, I think, at the level of animals. And if you think about it, animals live to eat, live to sleep, live to give blessings, and live to reproduce. That's the life of an animal. Those are earthly blessings. And if that's all you want that's all you live for, that's all you get. But we know that people who find their identity in earthly blessings are never happy. They're never satisfied. They, they, they never get enough. But when we receive spiritual blessings in heavenly places, we are more than satisfied. We are overwhelmed with the glory of his presence. And so we're made in the image of God. So he has something much higher for us than simply going to bed, sleeping, raising kids, going to a job and eating and drinking and having fun. That is that is not what we're called to. So, for every blessing we receive, we receive in Christ, and God wants to bless us with every spiritual blessing that is available because Paul says, he has blessed us with how many spiritual blessings? All every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So, it's not like it's a menu And we choose it's like it's a bucket and he pours so every blessing that God has in the heavenlies every spiritual blessing is available to every one of us if we just walk in fellowship with him where he is then he gets to the the place that gets you know where, where people get stuck They get stuck in Ephesians 1, and they get stuck in in Romans 8. That's where people usually get stuck when it comes to predestination. So we're going to talk about this for a moment. So verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So let's talk about these two positions. We have the reformed Calvinist position, which fully embraces predestination in a way I'm going to explain here. And then we have, well, what's called Armenianism or those who don't believe in predestination, and I'll, I'll explain to you the difference. So those who are Calvinists, they have a little acronym that they walk by, and it's called TULIP. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what they believe. There's five points that Calvinists or Reformed Um, people believe. First of all, T, the total depravity of man. And that is that there is not a person that can achieve personal salvation. We can only, God is the only one who can give salvation. Total depravity. Secondly, unconditional election. So God could save everyone, Without any conditions. So it's God's unconditional election, which is better explained in the L, which is limited atonement. So because God can choose to save whoever he wants to choose to save, we then have limited atonement. And this is what limited atonement means only those chosen, predestined by God for salvation, will be saved. Not everyone can come to Christ. This also means that those not predestined for salvation are predestined for eternal judgment. And probably the man who is most famous for what they call double predestination in teaching is a man called R.C. Sproul, and he's very clear. God has predestined some for others. It's not your choice, and God has predestined some with eternal judgment for others. It's not your choice. It's God's choice because God is sovereign. So you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and then I is irresistible grace. So God is all-powerful and capable of loving us no matter what we've done, and that's true. God's grace is unconditional when you look at it from that way, that he's all-powerful that he will love anybody no matter what. And then finally, the perseverance of the saints, that a person needs to be sure they have gained salvation. In other words, they believe that those who are chosen by God, because they're chosen, they will always be saved. There will never be any falling away. And their position is if there are those who say they were saved and live their life accordingly, and then someday get offended or disappointed with God and walk away and renounce that which they believed in for so many years, their position is um, they were deceived. They were never saved because God never chose them. So that's the position of Reformed Calvinism. Now, Armenianism, they came up with an acronym which using words you and I would never use uh, in order to be a flower also. And uh, they came up with Daisy. So, and these are the positions. So, I'm like, the, the first one, D stands for diminished depravity. So, Calvinism, Reform believes total depravity. Arminianism is diminished depravity or human free will. In other words, humanity is depraved, and though man is fallen, he is not incapacitated by the sinful nature. And man can freely choose to come to God. His will is not restricted and enslaved by his sinful nature. The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts and draws us to choose salvation. So total depravity means we don't have a choice. Diminished depravity means, yeah, we all are, are all depraved, but we can choose to love God and choose to choose the work of the cross. And then we can be lifted out of our diminished depravity. The A is annulled election, which I'm sure that's something we would talk about every day. It basically means conditional election. So God bases his election on his foreknowledge of those who freely choose him. Romans 8 says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me stop on this for a moment. I have a very interesting family. As you know, My all my kids are in full-time ministry. Um, my son is a pastor and my daughters are married to pastors. And all three are in different theological camps. So my uh, oldest son-in-law, Derek, is a total Calvinist. And um, we had a long conversation. I asked Derek and some of you were there uh, to preach my dad's funeral. And when Derek preached my dad's funeral, he preached the same message I would preach. And uh, that night after the funeral was over, all my, my, my cousins and my sons-in-laws and my son, not my cousins, my nephews, um, we all went out and just sat on the table and talked. And so there were nine of us around the table. It was it was Derek, the Calvinist, and the eight non-Calvinists sitting at the table. And I simply said to Derek, I said, I don't get it. How can you preach the message you preached today <coughs> and believe that only those who God's chosen is going to believe what you preach today? He said, because we're taught in seminary to preach like Armenians, but to believe like Calvinists. And he says, the reason we preach like Armenians is because we all believe this. People can only come to salvation if somebody tells them, because that's what the Bible says. That's God's sovereign way to do it. So even though they're chosen for salvation, until they hear about the possibility of salvation, they're not just going to arbitrarily wake up one day and go, oh, today i am decided to believe in Jesus. There has to be the truth taught and the Holy Spirit to convict, which we believe. So we agree on that. We agree that the Bible says, and we studied that in Galatians, it is the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts, and then our responsibility is to decide if we don't accept that love or reject it. And so, and Derek and I, we we have come to this, the difference in our theology is based by two words. According to Romans 8, whom the Lord foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So I believe that because of salvation... I am predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. I cannot be conformed to the image of Jesus until I'm saved. So my predestination then is because I accepted the work of the cross, I am destined to become like Jesus. The Calvinist position is because you were chosen for salvation, you will become conformed to the image of Christ. So because, and the difference is this, they believe because we're chosen for salvation, and I believe that because of salvation, I'm predestined. And that's the difference. And, and so when I say, but here's the thing, we all end up in the Jesus River. We all end up in this one river that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. So the other part of, um, of Daisy um, impersonal atonement or universal atonement. So we believe Christ died for everyone. He didn't just die for some. We believe he died for everyone, making salvation possible for everyone. He just didn't die for some. He died for all. Um, sedentary grace, irresistible resistible grace, and that is God calls everyone to salvation, but many freely reject God's grace. So while they believe the only ones who are called are the ones who are chosen, we believe that the Holy Spirit will call everybody and they make the choice to accept or reject the gospel. And then finally, yieldable justification, yieldable justification or falling from grace. True Armenians believe That the saved can fall from grace and lose their salvation. And it's based upon Hebrews chapter 6. I'll read that to you, and then I'll tell you how both sides look at that verse. And then I'm going to leave this alone, and you decide what you are. So, Hebrews 6 For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have come partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have it, and have tasted the good work of God, and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and be put to open to an open shame. So, this verse here's here's how the um, Calvinists see it, and here's how the Armenians see it. Calvinists believe that the enlightenment is not salvation, that the enlightenment is knowledge. Knowledge they need to know about people who have been presented all of the information, all of the knowledge they need to know about accepting Jesus, and they reject it. <clears throat> and so everything about tasting uh, the heavenly gift, becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit, they interpret that to be knowledge. Armenians believe that the Enlightenment is salvation. And the reason they believe it's salvation is because only those who are saved can taste of the heavenly gift, and only those who are saved become partakers of the Holy Spirit. You can't be only by knowledge be a partaker of the Holy Spirit. It takes faith in Jesus, and being partakers of the Holy Spirit means that we have accepted the love of God that Holy Spirit's poured into our heart to give us the revelation to accept works of Christ by faith. So <clears throat> if you believe enlightenment is knowledge, then when you wear those glasses, every verse you read in, in scripture about that will be translated into um, sovereign predestination. Only those who are saved are saved because God chose them before he ever created heaven and earth To be saved. If you are on the other camp, then you believe that there are those who have tasted of the Lord, who accepted Christ, and somewhere along the way got offended and said, I'm done with this, and have walked away. Now, there is another camp, just to make this more complicated. And and let me say this most um, Reformed or Calvinists in their eschatology are preterists. So most um, Calvinists are all millennial. Um, They believe that the tribulation took place in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And they believe that from the time of that until the time that Jesus returns is a figurative thousand years. It's not literal. And that's the foundation of most preterists. Now, there are also those who are Calvinists, who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. My son-in-law is one. So if you go to Master's Seminary, they're not preterists, they're pre-tribbers. They're premillennial millennial pre-tribbers. There are also, <coughs> in, that, in that whole realm, um, there are also Armenians who are pre-trib, pre-rapture, who believe in eternal security who believe in what is called once saved, always saved. So once you have been saved, there is nothing, doesn't matter how hellish of a life you live after you accept Jesus, your salvation is eternal. It's once and for all. And those are the ones the Bible talks about just barely making it in by the skin of their teeth. So you have three camps, really, when it comes to our salvation. Number one, you can't lose it because God chose you to be saved. Number two, you can lose it because you've accepted it and somewhere along the way you got offended or, or, or deceived and you renounced what you believed in and you walked away. And, and I, know, I know people who have had a great influence in my life who have done that. Um, and, and I've talked about this before. Uh, a guy I went to school with at APU who um, wrote one of the two mo- most powerful children's musicals um, after he graduated. Uh, he was an ordained Assembly of God pastor. He wrote a Christmas musical called <clears throat> Mary Had a Little Lamb. And he wrote an Easter musical called His Fleece Was White as Snow. The salvation story is in there through and through, powerful. Um, we, my, my wife's children's choirs did it like three or four years in a row when we were pastoring at CFC. And we'd have parents in the preschool come to Jesus through the story of these musicals. The guy who wrote it, Dan Barker, is now the guy who gets the uh, association of atheists. He is the guy, primary guy, who gets the uh, nativity scenes removed, who gets crosses taken down. Um, I've listened to interviews with him and debates with him. He even says, look it, I was a Pentecostal pastor. I prayed in tongues. In fact, even today, when I'm really stressed, I pray in tongues, and it gives me peace crazy. You can go on YouTube and watch him and hear him say these things. But an APU grad, ordained minister, walked away. Do I think that because he was saved back here that now he says God doesn't exist and Jesus doesn't exist? Do I think that because he asked Jesus into his heart that God's going to say, it's okay that you have deceived thousands of people and people are going to hell because you keep telling them I don't exist, but that's okay. You come on in. So there is all three camps, and you have to decide what you believe. I'm not here to tell you to believe in eternal security, to believe because a a Calvinist and my my daughter says this. If they were in church and they did everything and they loved Jesus and all this, and all of a sudden they don't, then they were never really saved in the first place. Another example, we had when I first became pastor, uh, when I said full-time pastor, so, when I was associate pastor, we had a, a couple in our church who are children's pastors for five years. And she was, <coughs> um, she was the sweetest, um, most passionate woman for Jesus. I mean, all of our kids were being taught by her. And um, I hadn't been, this was my first real tough time as a pastor. I'd been, I'd been senior pastor for about three months. Her husband shows up in my office with a gun a loaded gun, and he's come to my office to kill himself in front of me because his wife has just left him for a woman, the woman who was our children's pastor. I'm going, what are you talking about? I mean, I know her. That's not her. And so I talked him out. I got the gun. I called the cops. The cops took the gun. They didn't arrest him, walked him through it, counseled him through it, So then I called her and I said, can you come talk to me? Can you come see me? She comes into my office the next day. She has cut her hair to a boy's haircut. She's wearing leather pants and a leather jacket. She has hickeys all over her neck and she starts talking to me like a drunk sailor. The words that she's using, the things that she's describing what she's saying about the church, what she's saying about her husband, what she's saying about the woman she spent the night with, I'm going, who are you? And that just happened like that overnight. So I've seen people who, who have cried on the altar, who have loved God, who have led children to Christ and totally walk away. And it's not my place. I'm not saying that there, that's, that's one of the mysteries we won't know. That's the thing about relationship with God. There are mysteries. Paul says we look through a glass darkly, you know, but then face to face. So we have to decide and and I just want to say we have to decide on these minor issues, these little streams, what we believe, not because it's something we need to argue. My son-in-law and I love each other. We totally agree that people need to hear the gospel and they need to accept Christ as their savior. My son is a assistant pastor at a Southern Baptist Reformed church. How that happens, I don't know. <clears throat> and he and I have had long discussions. And when he comes to, he's, he is totally in the sovereignty of God camp, which I am too, and he's totally on board with every part of TULIP except limited atonement. He said, I just cannot believe that God destines people for hell. You know, and I have a conversation. Um, he's and his his pastor. We've had great conversations. I have a conversation with pastor's pastor says we want the gifts of the Holy Spirit to show up in our church. So his brother, the pastor's brother, is a vineyard pastor, you know, but vineyard John Wimber, his uh, his right hand man, Wayne Grudem. They are reformed and their theology. They believe in the gifts, they believe in power evangelism, but they believe in sovereignty of God and only those chosen to be saved will be saved. So, all of that to say, Paul's going to talk about this again in a little while. He talks about it in Romans, he talks about it in Philippians. You you can decide to make it an issue of contention or you can decide to say, do you love Jesus? I love Jesus. Do we want people to get saved? We do. Let's present the gospel to them, and we'll let God work the rest out. And we may all find when we get to heaven that all of us were wrong. Well, I don't know how that works out. We can't all be wrong. But, but my point is this. I have been in too many arguments to finally understand it doesn't matter. what matters is salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone and then unless someone is convicted of sin and prays a prayer of repentance you know again in Romans if we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ died and God raised him from the dead and we confess with our mouth the lordship of Jesus Christ we are saved the same paul that's saying this about predestination which by the way historically Um, Reformed theology came out of Luther. So up until Luther, there was no Reformed theology. So it wasn't until the 1400s that this was even taught. But you also have to understand that the church at the time was evil and vile and an utter mess. Um, All that to say, we love Jesus. The next building I build is gonna have bathrooms in the children's (laughs) church wing. (laughs) Yes, like we used to have at CFC, toilets that we could put our feet on to tie our shoes and they can sit on. Um, But all that to say is that I don't wanna spend my life majoring in minors. I don't wanna spend my life arguing Uh, whether the gifts were today, the only time I even argue about the gifts is some people who go to the extreme and say people who pray in tongues are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I will contend with those people. Those who want to tell me it doesn't exist today, we don't need a date, that's fine. You do what you do. I know what praying in in my heavenly language does for me. I know how it helps me. Um, I know how I've prayed in tongues over every square inch of this city. So... Um, but the bottom line is even that doesn't matter because it is salvation that is the issue, a personal relationship with Jesus. And Paul goes on to talk about that. So so we're done. So can the free actions of people choosing to believe in Christ be predestined? That's that's the question we ask. Paul, now, if we understand the context, again, context in Scripture is important. You know, the the... One of the things that um, when you get into a discussion with uh, Reformed theology is is John 15, I think it is, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and called you. Um, but the context of that conversation was Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas, asking him, "How how are people going to... Respect us or listen to us after you're gone. And Jesus is saying, well, look, at you didn't choose to follow me. I prayed all night. If you go to Luke, it says Jesus prayed all night to find out who the disciples should be. And then after he prayed all night, he chose the 12 and it names them. And it's that context that he's talking about choice. You didn't choose to be my disciple. You didn't choose to follow me. I chose you. I called you. And so when you read it in that context, it makes sense. But if we take it and try to apply it to each individual It's not the same, and that's the same thing here. Paul is writing, he's speaking of a corporate, not individual. In other words, he's talking about everybody together who reads this letter are elected in this passage. So when Jews thought of election or predestination, Jews thought and still do think primarily of Israel. Israel was chosen. God chose Abraham. Abraham chose his offspring, we have it in the Bible. Um, And Israel as a nation was elected, but Israel was not elected for salvation, Israel was elected for service unto God. And remember we talked about in Galatians, just because you were born, it says just because you're of the seed of Abraham, doesn't mean you're gonna receive the reward of righteousness I promised to Abraham, because only those who kept my law only those who walked in righteousness who accepted what i instruct you to do will receive the reward of righteousness that i promised to abraham and it says paul says there are those who are of the receive the inheritance of abraham no problem least he didn't come out and describe what he was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, um, so this didn't mean that every individual born to Israel was a part of God's chosen people. You know, only those who kept the covenant were considered true Israelites. And, and so um, Paul doesn't say that God chose us to be in Christ. Listen to what Paul says. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It doesn't say he chose us to be Christians. He chose us that when we're in Christ, the attribute of being in Christ is holiness and blamelessness. That's why it says, you shall be holy unto me because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we were chosen To carry the attributes of Christ. You know, it's left, I believe it's left up to our choice. Now that you've chosen to be in Christ, what was predestined for the group becomes predestined in you. What was predestined for everybody who believes becomes predestined in me. You know, and we with Paul can say, in Christ, we who've chosen to believe, we're predestined to holy, to be holy and blameless. And Paul goes on to say it's by adoption. So let me, let me give you a picture here of, of how it works. <clears throat> Our relationship with God is like one that <clears throat> God is the judge. A criminal comes before a judge, and it's the judge's responsibility <clears throat> to pass a judgment on the criminal. And we have laws Well, we used to have laws that said what was to be meted out, but those are kind of changing now. But anyway, so you stand before the judge. The judge says, because you did this, this is your penalty. So in this instance, your penalty is you're going to have to pay uh, $25,000 restitution. Then here's how our relationship with God works. So we have been judged. But then the judge comes down off of the dais, He comes down and stands next to the one who he's just pronounced judgment on, and he pays the penalty for them. Then not only does he pay the penalty, but then takes them home as his own child and gives him the same or them the same privilege, him or her the same privileges as if they were his own children because of adoption. That's the picture Paul gives for us here. Yes, God is a righteous judge. God meets out judgment on sin. You and I are sinners. When we came before God, there was a penalty on our life that began in the garden that said, because of the sin of our life, there is a judgment that has to be meted out. And that judgment is blood. Blood must be shed. A price must be paid for your sin. Then he says, but here, I'm going to take care of that for you. He pays the price through his son, but not only does he pay the price by the spirit of adoption, he brings us in and takes us home as his own sons and daughters and gives us the same inheritance that he's given to his son. And so that's, that's the whole th- premise upon how our relationship with God is built. That's the thing that we need to make sure people understand. So, you know, in in his infinite love, God chooses us for adoption to be his own children. We were created to have fellowship with God. It's all throughout the scripture. It begins in Genesis 1 and goes all the way down. God created us to have fellowship and relationship with him. And through Jesus' sacrifice, you know, because of Adam's sin, that relationship was forfeited. But God reestablished that relationship when he sent Jesus to die for us. And so... Here, Here is the work of God was his son. So here's what it says in verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So in him we have redemption through his blood. There's no possible redemption outside of Jesus' redeeming blood. There's no other way our penalty could be paid before God. There's, we couldn't work hard enough, we couldn't give enough, you know, there's not enough animals to sacrifice, not enough could be done. There had to be an eternal redemptive price, and and redemption always implies a price that is being paid for someone's freedom. That's, that's the true meaning of redemption. Um, probably a bad example, but we had a, a, a soldier who deserted and was captured by the Taliban, whose name was Bo Bergdahl, his redemption, our country redeemed him by giving five terrorists back to the Islamist. So he was redeemed. There was a price paid for his redemption. For us, the price that was paid was the blood of Jesus. And by that blood of Jesus, we are fully redeemed and brought in the presence of God. And so when Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father making an intercession for us, when we enter into the throne of God, God looks at us through Jesus. Part of Jesus' intercession is to say, Father, I've washed them clean by my blood because they believe in my redemptive work. So they are allowed to come and sit with me at your right hand. They are allowed to make their requests known to you. They are allowed... As your children, as your adopted sons and daughters, to walk in the full privilege and right that you've given me as your son. And so, and it's only according to the riches of his grace. Redemption and forgiveness are given to us according to the measure of God's grace. Again, it goes back to the beginning of Paul's letter. Grace and peace to you through Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't have peace if you haven't accepted the grace of God. And so then he talks about the mystery of his will. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention or his pleasure, which he purposed in him with a view to a dispensation of the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So he's made known to us by the Holy Spirit the mystery of his will. And part of what belongs to us under the riches of his grace is this knowledge of the mystery of his will. God's will really isn't a mystery. In fact, this is what it says. It is God's will. This is what your Bible says. It is God's will that none perish. How much is none? All. Oh, that none perish, but all come to redemption. That's what your Bible says. That's not me paraphrasing. So it's God's intention that everybody would be saved. God wants everybody to accept that none perish, but all come to repentance. But understanding this, if we don't come to repentance, we perish. If people do not come and repent of their sin and accept the work of the cross as payment in full for the penalty of the with a price, and you don't, then they are not redeemed. And if you're not redeemed, then you haven't been bought with a price and you don't belong to anybody except for the one who owns you already, who is Satan. You are a slave to sin. Your own by the prince of this world. And so that's the mystery of God's will. God's great plan and purpose, which was once hidden, is now revealed in Jesus. <clears throat> it's a plan of a master of a family has that he's established to, to manage his family. It's it's this it's it's how you would manage any type of business. God said, This is how my family is born, and this is how my family succeeds. It it does so by us understanding who we are, how we've been redeemed, and the price that's been paid. And so, um, in in the fullness of times, in other words, when the time is right for the consummation of his purpose and his providential overruling the course of the world, then the consummation of all that God has promised is going to be realized. In other words, we're not going to have the fullness of all that is promised to us until Jesus returns. (coughs) And when Jesus returns is a whole different teaching and uh, weeks of teaching. So we've obtained an inheritance um, because of the fact that for us, Jesus is not a judge, but he's the one in whom we have the inheritance. Uh, We are predestined for this according to the counsel of his will and the reasons for his choosing reside in him, not us. And therefore, when we see these three aspects of God's plans work together, then we see the fullness of what God has done, and that it begins with God's purpose, it rests in the counsel of his will, and finally it results in his work, which was Jesus on the cross, which we accept. So, by the counsel of his will, that that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Um, So, this word counsel actually means to the planning of God that God had this plan, God's purpose in all this was that those who trust Jesus will exist to praise God for his glory. Um, and the goal of God's ultimate plan is to glorify himself. And so we who first trusted Christ, and Paul says that speaking of Jewish believers, um, but then he goes on to say in verse 13 and 14, Because so he says, we who first trusted Christ, um, then he says in verse 13, in him you also. So we who first trusted Christ were the Jews, and now Paul's speaking to Gentiles, and he says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So here's how Paul closes this part. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So God's sovereign choice works, but it doesn't exclude human cooperation. So one side of predestination says, because God chose us, there's nothing we have to do. It's just going to happen inevitably. The other side of predestination says this, that God's sovereign choice works, But it needs my cooperation to accept his work. And his work is Jesus. Then these were sovereignly chosen because they were the ones who trusted, heard the word of truth, and believed. Having believed, you were sealed. The sealing doesn't come before we believe. So the one-sided predestination believes that you're sealed before you believe because God's already chosen you. The other side of predestination says you're sealed because you believe, and therefore you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if the sealing happens before you believe, then we have nothing to do with it. God's already worked it all out. If the sealing happens after we believe, then it's based upon our choice to accept this. Even if you believe in that relationship with him, understanding this, even if you believe the sealing took place before you were born you still have to come over to this side and accept the work of the cross you can't live as a hellion and then stand before god and go i'm chosen you know and god says well actually because you didn't do your part of the deal you know you weren't chosen and so we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that's essential to know that there's a promise in the Holy Spirit. That The Bible says that once we accept Christ, first of all, the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our heart. When we accept that point in, then the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He walks with us. He talks with us. He comforts us. He, he, he does all of this as he lives within us. And so his presence in our lives acts as a seal which indicates ownership. You know, in the old days, the, the king, you know, if he sent a letter, he would get some wax and he'd melt it and he'd put it on it, and then he'd have a, a signet ring and he'd put his seal on it so that you know it's his ring and nobody his, his seal and nobody can break it unless they have permission of the king to do so. Well, the same thing happened. When we accepted Christ as our Savior, our heart was made like pliable wax and the Holy Spirit had the signet ring and it was embedded into our heart The seal that says, I belong to the king. I've been saved by the king. The seal has been set upon us. The presence in the believer denotes ownership and security. The sealing with the spirit is not an emotional feeling or some mysterious inward experience. It is a reality of eternity. And finally, he says, until the redemption of the purchased possession. So we have this guarantee Until we are completely purchased by God, um, we are still his, and that the completed purchase takes place through the resurrection and glorification to the praise of his glory. And so you're going to have to take all of this and mull it over for yourself and decide what you want to believe. As long as you believe salvation happens only through Christ alone, (coughs) you can come to me and say, you know what, I really kind of am in the Calvinist camp, and I'm going to say, great, I love you. Let's, let's love Jesus together. So, again, we want to focus on essentials and not those things that aren't necessarily essential. That's one of the things when we sat down with pastors in the city, we said, look it, <clears throat> we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different views. We have different views on eschatology. We have different views on communion. We have different views on baptism. But I said, we have the same view on Jesus. We have the same view on salvation. So our fellowship is going to be based upon that which we agree upon. And we're not going to spend our time swimming down little streams trying to decide which stream is right and which stream is wrong. And every pastor said yes. We agree with it. The thing that designates the fellowship of shepherds in Azusa is salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone? Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, you know, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, um, we can say to other outside groups like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who want to come and be a part of the fellowship, we can say, here's what we believe completely. This is what our fellowship is based upon. And so we're not swimming streams, we're swimming the river. And so let's just all make sure we stay in the river, all right? So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus in our hearts and lives. We're thankful. The truth is truth. And the reality is those who believe we've chose you first and are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, and those who believe that you chose them to be conformed to the image of Christ, We are all stand before sisters in you. We all have received the spirit of adoption and we all will stand before you and receive rewards for faithfulness. And so, God, we thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, you continue to teach us as we follow after you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the sign up sheet.